Welcome back to Mind Your Money, a show by public.com that explores the relationship between money and behavior and happiness. I'm Morgan Housel. I'm a partner at the Collaborative Fund, and I'm the author of The Psychology of Money. I'm Doug Bonaparte, president at Bonafide Wealth. And on this episode, we're going to talk about doomerism and how a culture of pessimism can weigh on financial well-being. Joining us, one of my favorite content creators, Kyla Scanlon. She's done such a good job explaining the inner workings of the economy, what's going on in the economy, both in current times, but also exploring how people think about economic growth and pessimism better than almost anyone else I've seen in recent times. So we're so happy to have you here, Kyla. Thanks for being here. Yeah, no, thanks so much for having me on. I'm excited. I want to start with something that you've written a lot about lately and something that I've thought about quite a bit over the years as well, which is kind of the combination between doomerism and nostalgia. Why there is so much of an emphasis in economic content on TV and newspapers and Twitter of doom. Like there's always hyperinflation's right around the corner. The economy's mm-hmm. going to collapse. It's always this drumbeat of doom. And you've brought up this interesting relationship of how that might apply and relate to nostalgia of people just remembering the past as better than it actually was. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think doomerism is super interesting because Derek Thompson actually wrote this article in The Atlantic talking about how recession doomers got everything so wrong. And I feel like that's a big part of it is like they just are always banging on the drum of a recession happening. And part of that reason, I think, is because they're remembering previous times as being like way better. And so if you're always thinking back to the past as being so good, of course, you're going to think that we're always in a recession and that things always feel bad because you're really focused on how things were really good previously. We, you and I had talked about this recently, like talking about yeah. nostalgia is not something that comes up a lot in the economy. There, there's nothing in an economics textbook about nostalgia. And I, I shared this story with you recently when, when you and I were chatting that my wife and I, uh, 12 years ago, we lived in this apartment that was like, it was such a cool apartment and it overlooked the water and we didn't have kids yet. So we could like sleep in and go to brunch. And I told my wife, I said, life was, that was as good as life gets back then. And she reminded me that actually during that period, I was the most, I was the saddest, most depressed, most anxious that I'd ever been in my life actually back then. And to me, like the takeaway was, I, re- I remember it as being good because it should have been good, even if it wasn't. And I think that happens in the economy as well, that people look back to 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and they think, oh, things should have been really good back then because we didn't have the deficits we do today. It was before COVID, whatever it might be. Even if they weren't that happy about the economy, they think they should have been, so they remember it as good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And I, I think that's a good point is that it's a lot of should haves, right? Like it's not actually reality. And like, that's the difference between reality and expectations and all of those things. Um, People just feel like they should have been feeling good. And then if they don't feel that good in the present moment either, I feel like it just exacerbates all that. And I think that's the issue with now is like news media headlines have gotten increasingly more negative. Like every time you turn around, like things are really, really kind of being yelled at it as being bad. So I think that's a big part of it too, is that we're just being influenced by the content that we're endlessly consuming also. How much does our previous experience, I wanna bring up 2000, like you can't escape talking about the Great Recession in 2008 and how our, our, our biases are anchored to that. And I'm always curious how like, do you think that has an impact on why we think there's doomerism today? It was so bad back then that this next thing just has to be as bad, if not worse. Like, has that event removed any opportunity to look forward to a brighter future? I mean, maybe. So, like, 
one example that I've been kind of workshopping in my head is like if you get broken up with and like the next relationship that you enter into, you're going to be like more on guard. Um, you're not going to like fall in love so fast. And so I feel like after 2008, like, of course, that's a poor comparison being broken up with to a, like a national worldwide recession. But I do think that <laughs> I do think there's like a little bit of that in there where people were like, oh, 2008 was so bad. Like the housing market was so bad. The labor market was so bad. Of course, it's going to happen again. Of course, like things are going to be difficult. And I'm going to be on edge about it this time because I want to be prepared for the pain that could come. So I think that's part of it, too. Sometimes I think that after 2008, it was easy to say, oh, that was terrible, but that was a once in a century one off event. It's probably not going to happen again. And then in the early days of COVID, when things collapsed again and everything was shut down, then I think it was easier to say, maybe that's just how the world works. Every 10 years, everything collapses mm -hmm. and breaks, which honestly, if you look at economic history, is like not too far off. Like once every decade, there usually is some sort of terrible, terrible event, 9-11, 2008, uh, COVID and whatnot. But I think it's, it's just easier now than it's been in probably a couple generations to look at recent economic history over the last 10 or 15 years and say, no, things actually are pretty fragile and can just completely go to hell quickly. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like that's what we saw during COVID. Like we saw a supply chain snap. And I feel like there was always this expectation that things would be mostly okay. Like that things that did end up snapping like wouldn't ever really snap like supply chains. So I think that changed a lot of people's priors as well as um, they just didn't expect things to happen that did happen. And then I think there's also, as you're saying, like around business cycles, like there is an expectation that we should have a recession every 10 years. Like I got into a Twitter fight about this actually, where this guy was like, we should have a recession. We need a recession to like reset the economy. And so I feel like that's a lot of people's mindsets too, is that like, we have to go through these really bad times so we can have good times. And I still don't know if I agree with that completely, but that's also part of the, the mindset, I think. I, I, I don't know if, if it's necessary, but I just think it's, it's inevitable. Is that, is, does, is that more accurate? Like if you look at economic history, there is no – that I can think of anywhere in any country like really long-term sustained growth. Maybe the one exception to that is Australia went like 25 years without a recession. But that's – if you look at like all of economic history, there's not many other examples. So I, I don't know if we need a recession, but they're inevitable. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But this person, uh, well, this mindset in particular was arguing that we need one, arguing that we need one. Um, I, there's been increasing discourse around the idea that like maybe we don't need to have recessions anymore. Like maybe they are sort of inevitable. Like we kind of circumnavigated one over the last year. Um, it seemed like we were just barreling towards that and somehow escaped it. Uh, I think like on the other side of it, like we could see some some downtrend. But yeah, I mean, maybe we don't have to do that i would love to know the demographic makeup of doomerism like how this applies by generation right because yeah. if you ask and you know not to make us sound like geezers here morgan and i i think have a few years on you but if you ask us you know elder millennials who launched their adult lives you know in the wake of you know the biggest financial events since the great depression and then literally end our growth cycle our first adult growth cycle with what global pandemic like we're winning the lotto of trauma you know mm -hmm. on you know in all in our lives so for me now i'll speak for me um yeah i i could easily see how okay like 
at the beginning of a cycle and an end of a cycle, I should have something pretty bad happen. Like I'm literally using that as the marker for, for my own personal and professional growth cycle. It's not healthy. It really is probably, it's not true. Like sure. It's inevitable that we'll see whether it's downturn or some event, but this is how it's marked me in, in, you know, being, uh, in being an older millennial. I'm curious how you view that being Gen Z. What, what's your, what do you relate to number one and how you view those events in terms of cycles and doomerism? Yeah. So I, I wrote this piece for fast company, like kind of talking about Gen Z in the workforce. And I feel like Gen Z and the younger generation in particular has also been bookmarked similar to how Gen X and millennials have been bookmarked, uh, where, you know, when I graduated six months later, the global pandemic happened. So the way that I relate to work and the way that my genera generation relates to work is a little bit different, I think, than how millennials and Gen X relates to work. In terms of how I view the economy, like, do I think that a bad thing has to happen? No. But I also think that that's like my like you were saying, like my personal stance is maybe like a, a little bit more optimistic. But I would say that amongst the demographic that I'm in, so Gen Z, a lot of people are sort of looking for a downturn so they can get a house or they can find a new opportunity. So I think that's a big part of it, too, is that people do see a downturn as an opportunity to get ahead. So I wouldn't totally disagree with what you're saying, but I would say that also you know, generational trauma seems to be universal, unfortunately. Yeah. I think that's a really good point about people rooting for a downturn because they see it as their only option to get ahead, buy stocks or buy a house. And I think as you have more financial inflation across financial assets, sometimes you have people who are pessimistic because they feel left out of crypto wealth, housing wealth, stock wealth, whatever it be. And there's no, like half of it is a sense of schadenfreude against people who've got rich and you don't think they deserved it. So you want them, you're kind of rooting for their collapse. And the other heart, particularly housing, I think is so critical, particularly for people in their thirties, where if you didn't buy your first house before 2022, yeah. it's like you, you feel completely locked out right now. And several people have brought up that it's like it's a bifurcated generation. Those who bought before 2022, last year, and those who didn't, is a completely different mindset. And for people who bought, you know, in in 2020, and they still got a 2.7 percent mortgage, and the housing prices doubled since then, and you compare that to someone who just waited 18 months longer, it seems unfair. And I think whenever you have a generation where it says that person's success is unfair. You're going to have a higher percentage of people who are rooting for failure and rooting for decline. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the housing market, there's a, I think it was a paper. It was just talking about how a lot of our problems just stem from people not having housing and like not having that opportunity. And I have like a really hot take on housing where I don't think it should be a speculative asset. I don't think that like home prices should be able to double in two years. And I know like, you know, all the real estate people are going to be like, oh, my God, I can't believe that. But I, I do think that like housing should be accessible for people. And the way that the United States housing market is set up in most housing markets, it's really not. Um, and I think that creates yeah some of that doomerism, like you were saying, Morgan, and just some of that anger where people are like, you know, I can't get ahead. And then chaos becomes a ladder. Right. And you use that as a way to get yeah. ahead. Mm -hmm. Totally. And I mean, yeah, there are a few things that can be more destabilizing, particularly once you're married and have kids than mm -hmm. not having stable housing. And that is a huge proportion of people right now. Totally get what would do you have any any prescriptions on what fixing the housing market would look like? It seems like a pretty intractable problem. Just we're so entrenched in the 
low interest rate, 30 year fixed mortgage. Like what is the other than build more houses, which is maybe the solution <laughs> that fixes all of this. Yeah. No, I think that the simplest solution is often the best solution. <laughs> yeah. 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 But I think it's tough. Like, you know, zoning is crazy. Restrictions are wild. Like in California, part of the um, Rick Palacios Jr. He works for John Burns Real Estate Consulting. He just released this chart talking about the issues in California. And part of the reason that they have problems building housing is because of zoning, because they just don't have the zoning ready for it. So I think that's a big part of it is, you know, just zoning issues and then also labor issues, uh, raw material issues. Like there's all of these things that are headwinds to the housing market. But I would say that like that is the simplest and best solution is just find a way to to build more homes for people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank, it's, thank it's you for tough. fixing the uh, the housing market for us. I know. Is that of... easy? <laughs> Just do it. <laughs> it's so hard. Build our, yeah. like, go long on home builder stocks here. But listen, all, all of these things clearly call for what? A vibe check, right? When you have doomerism and you have people calling for recessions and here we are talking to 08. I mean, it's very easy to get down in the dumps about about where we are. And, and I can thank you for, for giving me this vernacular of vibe session and doing vibe checks because it comes up a lot in practice when I'm talking to clients, especially over the last six to 12 months. It's like, wow, look at all look at all these great prints we're getting, whether they're great or not, but you know, more positive than not, you know, inflation's coming down, GDP is expanding, uh, other than, you know, today's job numbers, you know, things have been relatively good, despite everyone calling for a recession. So we have good numbers, but the vibes, everyone's sentiment is pretty garbage. Like, I, I actually feel that I could tell you that that checks out when I'm talking to just people, friends, clients, things like that. So we have we have this mismatch here, I want to talk about vibe session what it is give us an overview of that let's you created it let's hear it from you <laughs> yeah so vibe session is a temporary decline in economic sentiment but despite the economic data being relatively okay um i talked about this back in june of 2022 when when the people were feeling real bad i would say that sentiment has improved since then like consumer sentiment as measured by university of michigan is at all-time highs whether or not you agree with that metric in particular is you know questionable but the vibe session in general is this idea like well if you look around like the economy is doing okay but whenever you say that to anybody they're like what the heck and one example that i used was you know if you go up to somebody who is maybe struggling to pay rent or, you know, they're worried about student loan debt payments starting back up. And you're like, well, listen, industrial production metrics are pretty strong. Like that's not <laughs> going to feel very good. And so like, that's the whole idea of the vibe session is like, there's a disconnect between um, economic reality and what people are living. Yeah. Do you find that to be a new phenomenon? Like maybe that's driven by social media or when you look back historically, has there, has like the vibe always been a factor, even if you go back to the 50s and the 60s? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't called the vibe, but like reflexivity by Soros is essentially the same idea. Animal spirits with canes, essentially the same idea. The idea that human emotions are, are driving the stock market um, or the economy. A noise by, oh my God, I just forgot his name, but there's a researcher who published this paper called Noise. And he talked about that same idea, just like behavioral finance in general. You know, human behavior is a huge part of the economy because humans drive the economy. So it makes a whole lot of sense that vibes would be the underlying force behind what we're seeing yeah i feel like social media though has to make it worse than it's ever been just oh, totally. easier to find your crowd either easier yeah. to find other doomers mm -hmm. and and that's like such a new even 2008 you know the last mm -hmm. like big big recession 
Twitter and when in Facebook were not really things back then. I mean, they existed, but they were not part of the conversation. So everybody's financial information came from CNBC and the Wall Street Journal. And, 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 like, and that was it. It was really like a much more standard. Everyone was kind of getting the same information more or less. Mm-hmm. And of course, you had like, you know, you talked to your neighbors at the barbecue and you shared what was going on. But it's just such a different world now where you can get yeah. any information, find any other opinion that wants. So I think it's just like a goldmine for confirmation bias. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of people find community within boomerism as well. Like we have a loneliness crisis, right? In the United States. And so if people are able to find other people who are like, hey, man, things do kind of suck. Like, of course, you're going to latch onto that and and like want to hang out with those people and then talk about how things suck a lot. Like misery loves company. And so I think that's a big part of it, too, is that like boomerism has been a catalyst for community in a lot of aspects. And then I think there's also overwhelm. So if you're constantly being overwhelmed by news and you're not sure like what's true or not, you're probably going to listen to the more negative thing because like you're like, I got to keep that guard up. So I think that's a big part of it, too, is like people don't know what's right or what's wrong uh, and or not even right or wrong, but like true or not true. And that can be confusing and overwhelming. So, so given all that. No, no. Yeah, Doug, go ahead. I, I'm, I'm taking it. I'm taking it. Got to love the laugh. <laughs> all right. So, uh, Kyla, shy of everyone eating somas like in Brave New World, um, give us some give us some positive vibes, right? What are the things that ultimately lead us out of the vibe session? What can we look forward to? I guess we can build homes and eat somas at the same time. But shy of those two things happening, where are those you know those glimmers of positivity? How do we write that ship? This is something I, I ask myself quite a bit. Like, okay, like. When do we look at the data that's coming in and start to feel great around that? What do we need? Is it fusion and aliens? I'm I'm still guessing here. Oh my gosh, that's kind of funny that you said that. <laughs> like, I do think the superconductor, even though like nobody really knows if it's real or not, I just think we need like more inspiration. And of course, that sounds goofy, and it's like woo woo, and it's like whatever. Like, what are you talking about? But I do think that like we have sort of lost that human inspiration we've lost a lot of aesthetic we've lost a lot of beauty and i feel like with the superconductor even though we're not sure if it's real or not like that's the first time that people have been like kind of excited about the future and it's like it doesn't seem as scary and doomeristic as ai does it's like oh we could like have lossless power generation so i think it's more things like that like if we can unbottle science and like allow some of the stuff to rip um in terms of like more economic reality sort of things um people seem to be feeling better like i think having experiences, it's going to sound goofy too, but like the Taylor Swift concert, I think was actually really good for the economy and really good for how people felt because you're able to go out and like be with your friends and like enjoy all of this stuff going on. So I think it's things like that too, like the more that people feel the freedom to like go and have these experiences that they want to have rather than just consuming goods, I think is also a boon for the economy as well. Yeah. Morgan and I had a, a conversation about that not too long ago about, oh, hey, nice. we're, we're just one fusion, you know, experiment away, one desalinization, you know, uh, yeah. apparatus away. I think I'm not, I'm not sure if aliens were thrown in there, but I'm putting them in there. You know, we could use a big, you know, space exploration. We also had, you know, mm-hmm. curing disease, mRNA technology. We're just like one breakthrough away from doing what you said, which is, you know, making that human Uh, that human element of we're all in it together and we have something really great to look forward to happen. Uh, So yeah, fingers crossed on, you know, turning salt water into drinking water. Um, I'm here for it. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. I feel like, I mean, you, you, you mentioned this between AI fusion, superconductor, MRNA, you can go down the list of, it seems like there is more to be optimistic about from a technological perspective 
than at probably any other time in my lifetime that I can remember. And you, you mentioned we, we don't even know if the, super, if the superconductor is real. And it's so easy to blow out what uh, these technologies might become in the future, just blow them out of proportion. But it seems like there's actually quite a bit to be optimistic about. And some, some, some people have mentioned too, like, hey, on, like the inflation rate is down to 3%. Unemployment is 3.5%. You can earn 5.5% on your cash. The stock market's up 25%. Like it's actually pretty good right now. Mm-hmm. And there's part of me that's like, look, everyone's in a different position. And there's no like, it, it, you can't generalize too much because people have such different situations that they're in. But if you're not feeling great and optimistic about the economy today, this might be about as good as, as conditions are going to look at any point in your life. And if you're not optimistic about it today, then it's, it's hard to be optimistic, like for your individual situation. Yeah. Yeah. Noah opinion actually wrote that he was like, I think the art title of the article was if this isn't a good economy, what is? <laughs> and I think that's like yeah. the big question is like, cause I'll have people in my comments and like, I get it, but like, they'll be like, actually things kind of suck really bad. And it's like, okay, maybe, but like they could suck way bad worse. And that's the worst possible thing to say to somebody is like, well, it could be way worse, buddy. But like, I think that's kind of the world that we're in is like, somehow we've managed so far to like circumnavigate a recession with the Fed ripping rates. Like the labor market is still relatively strong. Inflation is going down. Um, and Derek Thompson, so in this Atlantic piece that he published, part of the reason that he cited for potentially like why we were able to circumnavigate a recession was because the vibes were so bad, because people were feeling so bad, is that like the economic data ended up sort of responding to that and things sort of slowed down just because uh, based on sentiment alone. Um, so I think that's like a big thing too, is like we've been able to, to be okay for, for this long despite all of these pressure points that we're like maybe you won't be it's it's, it's kind of sad too to think that we might look back at at 2023 and be like man that that actually was about as good as it's ever been in my life and i was sad about it the whole time yeah yeah and i guess that gets nostalgia too <laughs> a little right, bit right. yeah yeah <laughs> well i don't i don't like that i don't like that one bit um but I also want to point out because you brought up social media not just too long ago. Um, the amount of uh, the amount of dopamine hits mm-hmm. that we're giving ourselves uh, on a regular basis. I would love to see you know dopamine hit growth curve uh, if that was ever a chart to see like just how many times we're hitting our brains with this from you know the tweets we put out there. Sorry, the posts we put out there, um, the content oh. that we consume, mm-hmm. the fact that we can get immediate gratification like an Amazon package mm-hmm. showing up at our door the next day. I was just teaching my daughter a very hard lesson around this, which was she lost her her goggles for like the fifth time at at camp and her expectation is that you know new 20 pair 20 pair of goggles can show up at the door the next day and i was like oh my god we can get everything we want when we want we can laugh we can cry we can do all of these things and then i pair it to what you're saying here about well you know why can't we look at the fact that there's more amazing things to look forward to than not morgan you're just like hey we'll look back at 2023 maybe it's because we're, we're absolutely bankrupting our brains with all the things that we do have you know kind of kind of a circular reference here everything we have that's great is the reason we can't appreciate all the greatness like mm-hmm. that that yeah. sucks <laughs> Yeah, and I, I think, think it's a big part of it. Yeah, go ahead. Now, as you say, I think one of the reasons that the 1950s felt so good to people is because they were comparing it against the World War II years and the Great Depression. And by comparison, <laughs> even if the 50s weren't that great economically, relative to what they just experienced, it was mm-hmm. pure heaven. 
And I think maybe, yeah, I think, I think there is a lot of that. If when the economy is strong, particularly for long periods of time, and you have everything at your fingertips, it's easy for your expectations to be so high that anything mm -hmm. less than perfect feels miserable. Mm -hmm. And I almost feel like a lot of people, a lot of doomerism is caused by people just look at it as binary. The economy is either perfect or it's terrible. And you can't, you can't settle for like, it's like 85% pretty good. That yeah. doesn't exist. It has to be one or the other. So even like I said earlier, you can say unemployment's three and a half percent. Inflation's coming down. You can earn interest on your cash, but then you could also counter and say, yeah, but the student debt problem and the, this problem, there's always going to be something. But I think like as on, on the spectrum right now, it's probably about as good as it's been in my lifetime. Wow. You think so? I think, I think that's probably true. Maybe, maybe in a period in the late nineties. But yeah. even if you go back to that period, I mean, just what, like the unemployment rate today is lower than it was in the late nineties. Mm -hmm. The inflation rate is probably about the same. Interest rates are probably about the same. Housing was cheaper back then. Stocks were in a bubble, which felt great, but in hindsight, it was a, was not a great thing. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think I, if I thought about it longer, I might disagree with that, but knee jerk, I think that's true. Things are about as good right now as they've ever been in my lifetime. I think that's probably right. Oh, interesting. Huh? I mean, I haven't, I don't know if I feel that about I guess because I haven't had that much lifetime, but like, I think that it seems like it's pretty good. I think that there's a lot of frustrations around like housing. I would say like when I talk to my peers, like that's the biggest thing is like, I don't know how we're going to be able to afford a home. Um, and then like the boomer wealth transfer, I think is going to be interesting too. Like some people are really going to benefit from that. And then some people who are not going to at all. And so I think that like the wealth inequality, like the increasing bifurcation there. Um, I don't know why I'm like, actually, that you're wrong. This is a bad time. But like, I, I do. Yeah, that's interesting that you think it's like the best. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, just holding into the last 25 years, the early 2000s was the dot com collapse and the recession yeah. and 9-11, like everything felt yeah. like it sucked. And even if you yeah. get back into the mid 2000s, mm -hmm. there were still like the remnants of the collapse, like 2003, four, five was still dealing with that collapse. 2005 and 2006 felt pretty good. That was the housing bubble. And then 07, 08, 09, pretty much from 07 to 2013 was the collapse. And then 2013 through COVID was like a relatively tepid recession. So I feel like if you look at the last 25 years, it's hard for me to think of a period being much better than it is right now. Yeah. yeah. And what's interesting about right now too is like we're start, we're seeing like fiscal spending pick back up. Um, so like, I don't know if you've seen the frying pan charts where it's like, we essentially are achieving like that same growth that we could have had during the 2010s. Um, and like we're seeing a way for the government to spend money on things that matter, like the CHIPS Act, the IRA, the IIGA. And I feel like that's going to be a boon for the economy moving forward too and set like a good precedent versus the 2010s versus austerity based. So I think that's like another thing to be excited about as well. I'm going to throw, I'm going to weigh in on that one. I got to go pre.com. You know, I think one of the, the luxuries that, you know, the mid to older millennials have here is they get to live, uh, they get to appreciate both worlds, you know, be digital natives and remember a time where there, there wasn't, you know, the internet. And I would go back to mid, mid to late nineties where I'm like, geez, you know, on one hand, you, you could go to your friend's house and, and play video games with them. And then an hour later, get on your bikes, you know, and go terrorize the neighborhood. And, you know, that I, I don't, you know, I think we traded the internet for basically the ability to like, send my kids out into the street. Like, I can't imagine my daughters hopping on their bikes and, you know, going, going out, Hey, we'll see you at dinner time. Like, no, you won't. Like I will drive you to your friend's house. And what time would you like for me to pick you up? So I would compare mm -hmm. 
you know, the, the, the dawn of dial-up internet era to where we are today. And I think there's huge trade-offs uh, between those two things. And uh, that, that has me think a lot about culture. And I think that's my, um, my opportunity to pivot to the culture economy. Um, and I want to talk to you a little bit about that, Kyla. You've written that culture is branded by brands and that our oh, world is dictated yeah. by what we consume. So along those lines of culture, do you think monetization of culture has gone too far? I think that's a interesting parallel between how at least internet culture or, or what culture of the nineties into today to hear from you about whether or not we've gone too far with monetization of culture. Yeah. So that quote specifically is from life after lifestyle um, by Toby. And in that piece, he talks about like the direct to consumer rise that happened during the 2010s, where you were essentially being branded by the products that you would consume. And like every subreddit was kind of like based around consumption. And so like, everything became about what you were wearing or like what you had, like if you had a mechanical keyboard, like all of those sorts of things. Um, so I think the monetization of culture is an interesting question because everything is an ad, right? Like that's how these social media platforms have to advertise. And so everything does end up essentially becoming monetized because everything has to become an ad. Like every single data point that you are is essentially monetized because they're selling it so they can sell you ads. So I think that is sort of harmful um, because people are aware that they're constantly being sold to and that creates, um, you know, a feeling of disconnect and like a feeling of uh, worry because you're like, oh my gosh, am I just here to to consume? And I feel like people lose connection to themselves within that um, and it creates a whole host of issues. Yeah. So, yes. <laughs> I heard someone say one time, I thought, I thought it was so interesting that one of the strongest brands ever created is the Beatles. And I mm -hmm. thought, what? Like, how does it? And he said, no, it's, it's strong because it's been cool for three generations, which is so rare. It's so rare for that to happen in any sort of culture. I think it's true across products of, of any sort, whether it's music or clothes or whatever to be, that you can span across generations. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's so every, I think every generation wants their own brand. Like, it's always a cycle that's moving back yeah. and forth. Every generation wants their own cool thing. Yeah. And I, I feel like what's interesting about like right now in terms of culture and like generational uh, pressures is previously up until the Barbie movie, we it was everything was a sequel, like everything was based in nostalgia, everything was Marvel Cinematic Universe. And so there was like no, nothing challenging at the movie theater on a, on a broad scale. And I would say even Barbie is still like Mattel's IP and Mattel is going to milk the heck out of that IP until it's gone. And so I think that's a big part of it, too, is that the, the stuff that we're consuming, so like the things that are being monetized, aren't maybe challenging us in the way that they need to because it is those dopamine hits. It is, you know, expectations to always be seeing the same thing in the same way that it's always been told. So I'd say that's also part of the generational difference is this generation maybe didn't grow up with um, like being challenged by the media that they're consuming. Yeah. Late 1990s was the peak of good original movies that Doug and I yeah. got to experience. I'm sorry, you were a little too young back then, but it was it was yeah. awesome. Every every summer there were five original movies that were all ten That's out crazy. of tens, yeah. and yeah, everybody we, saw them. We we had yeah. the hunt, we had the honeypot of of movie going experience here, and also mm -hmm. again the time no, no streaming, no other way mm -hmm. to go get it. You had no choice but to get creative, put that on the silver screen and get everybody. I mean, and then you had the bangers on Thanksgiving to Christmas. Like you, you were guaranteed mm. two ep more than two. Cause they were definitely going head to head, you know, on, you had a mission impossible or James Bond flick, you know, going on with something totally new. 
um, I want to I want to pair that to again this this idea that nostalgia and culture and monetizing it. I firmly firmly believe. I'll give you guys my secret. If you ever looking to leave the world of finance and make a good buck. All you got to do is open a 90s nostalgia shop in any local downtown, fill it with yeah. hogs, Tamagotchis, let kids, yeah. kids, let adults crack open baseball mm -hmm. card packs, you know, with sticks of gum in it. I could go, you know, what we got? We got stickers, oilies, scratch and sniff, the whole bit. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I would take all my disposable income right now and literally throw it at that. Um, so when you come to downtown, you know, Westfield, come to Doug's 90s nostalgia shop and come, you know, spend your money there. But mm. all kidding aside, I wouldn't be shocked to find that this this will be a big retail experience over the next five, mm. 10 years as nostalgia hits. It, it, it just does. Um, I already have in our downtown uh, a, a spot called Yesterkades, which you it's an arcade. I mean, you can go in there and not just play any console game you want. They got the Simpsons arcade. I mean, this is straight up, you know, flooding my brain with what it was like, you know, to go with your friends. And uh, they've allowed you to drink booze now at night for the adults, which is super cool. So uh, mark my words, 90 nostalgia, you'll see it. Um, you'll see this really be something that I think is, is going to be a moneymaker, not just uh, on a digital platform, but in real life as well. Have you seen that European dance movie spoof or dance song? Have you seen that? It's like a viral TikTok no, video. Oh, okay. So like there's this TikTok video of a comedian and some girl and they're spoofing or making a parody of a European dance song from the 90s. And it's really funny, but it blew up on Twitter, like 85 million views, but only have like 4 million views on TikTok. Primarily, I think yeah. because of the demographics. Yeah. yeah. So I think there's like a big desire from Twitter users who trend older yeah. to have that nostalgia. Yeah. yeah. Well, What's you've TikTok? you've successfully made made Doug and I feel very old today. Sorry, no, <laughs> my bad. Never again, never again, Morgan. Never again are we letting you're so youthful. <laughs> this has absolutely been one of my favorite episodes so far. Can't thank you enough, Kyla, for joining us. Um, it's been such an absolute pleasure to speak with you. So that'll do it for this episode of Mind Your Money. If you enjoyed listening. Be sure to tap that subscribe button to keep up with the latest shows and we will see you next time.